Anticipation. Hello, everyone. My name's Ariel. Yes, really. And this is Fairy Tale. A quick note before we get started. We do the original fairy tales here, so the contents may not be suitable for children. They are indeed occasionally quite grim. Today, I'll be reading you the third and perhaps the fourth voyages of Sinbad. Sinbad's third voyage. After a very short time, the pleasant, easy life I had made me quite forget the perils of my two voyages. Moreover, as I was still in the prime of my life, it pleased me better to be up and doing. So, once more providing myself with the rarest and choicest merchandise of Baghdad, I conveyed it to Balsora and set sail with other merchants of my acquaintance for distant lands. We touched many ports and made much profit, when one day upon the open sea we were caught by a terrible wind which blew us completely out of our reckoning, and lasting for several days finally drove us into harbor on a strange island. I would rather have come to anchor anywhere but here, quoth our captain. This island and all adjoining it are inhabited by hairy savages, who are certain to attack us, and whatever these dwarves may do we dare not resist, since they swarm like locusts, and if one of them is killed the rest will fall upon us and speedily make an end of us. These words caused great consternation among the ship's company, and only too soon were we to find out the captain spoke truly. There appeared a vast multitude of hideous savages, not more than two feet high and covered with reddish fur. Throwing themselves into the waves, they surrounded our vessel, chattering meanwhile in a language we could not understand, and clutching at ropes and gangways, they swarmed up the ship's side with such speed and agility that they almost seemed to fly. You may imagine the rage and terror that seized us as we watched them, neither daring to hinder them nor able to speak a word to deter them from their purpose, whatever it might be. Of this we were not left long in doubt. Hoisting the sails and cutting the cable of the anchor, they sailed our vessel to an island which lay a little further off, where they drove us ashore, then taking possession of her, they made off to the place from which they had come, leaving us hopeless upon a shore avoided with horror by all mariners for a reason which you will soon learn. Turning away from the sea, we wandered miserably inland, finding as we went various herbs and fruits which we ate, feeling that we might as well live as long as possible, though we had no hope of escape. Presently, we saw in the far distance what seemed to be a splendid palace, towards which we turned our weary steps, but when we reached it we saw that it was a castle, lofty and strongly built. Pushing back the heavy ebony doors, we entered the courtyard, but upon the threshold of the great hall beyond it, we paused, frozen with horror, at the sight which greeted us. On one side lay a huge pile of bones, human bones, and on the other numberless pits for roasting. Overcome with despair, we sank trembling to the ground, and there lay without speech or motion. The sun was setting when a loud noise aroused us. The door of the hall was violently burst open, and a horrible giant entered. He was as tall as a palm tree, and perfectly black, and had one eye, which flamed like a burning coal in the middle of his forehead. His teeth were long and sharp and grinned horribly, while his lower lip hung down upon his chest, and he had ears like an elephant's ears, which covered his shoulders and nails like the claws of some fierce bird. At this terrible sight our senses left us and we lay like dead men. 
When at last we came to ourselves, the giant sat examining us attentively with his fearful eye. Presently, when he had looked at us enough, he came towards us and stretched out his hand, took me by the back of the neck, turning me this way and that, but, feeling that I was mere skin and bone, he sent me down again and went on to the next, whom he treated in the same fashion. At last he came to the captain, and finding him the fattest of us all, he took him up in one hand and struck him upon a spit and proceeded to kindle a huge fire at which he presently roasted him. After the giant had supped, he lay down to sleep, snoring like the loudest thunder, while we lay shivering with horror the whole night through, and when day broke, he awoke and went out, leaving us in the castle. When we believed him to be really gone, we started bemoaning our horrible fate, until the hall echoed with our despairing cries. Though we were many, and our enemy was alone, it did not occur to us to kill him, and indeed we should have found that a hard task, even if we had thought of it and no plan could we devise to deliver ourselves. So, at last, submitting to our sad fate, we spent the day in wandering up and down the island, eating such fruits as we could find, and when night came we returned to the castle, having sought in vain for any other place of shelter. At sunset the giant returned, stepped upon one of our happy comrades, slept and snored until dawn, then left us as before. Our condition seemed to us so frightful that several of my companions thought it would be better to leap from the cliffs and perish in the waves at once, rather than await so miserable an end. But I had a plan of escape which I now unfolded to them, which they at once agreed to attempt. Listen, my brothers, I added, you know that plenty of driftwood lies along the shore. Let us make several rafts and carry them to a suitable place. If our plot succeeds, we can wait patiently for the chance of some passing ship which should rescue us from this fatal island. If it fails, we must quickly take to our rafts, frail as they are. We have more chance of saving our lives with them than we have if we remain here. All agreed with me, and we spent the day in building rafts, each capable of carrying three persons. At nightfall we returned to the castle, and very soon in came the giant, and one more of our number was sacrificed. But the time of our vengeance was at hand. As soon as he had finished his horrible repast, he lay down to sleep as before, and when we heard him begin to snore, I, and nine of the boldest of my comrades, rose softly and each took a spit, which we made red-hot in the fire, and then at a given signal we plunged it with one accord into the giant's eye, completely blinding him. Uttering a terrible cry, he sprang to his feet, clutching in all directions, trying to seize one of us. We had all fled different ways as soon as the deed was done, and thrown ourselves flat upon the ground in corners where he was not likely to touch us with his feet. After a vain search, he fumbled about until he found the door, and fled out of it, howling frightfully. As for us, when he was gone, we made haste to leave the fatal castle, and stationing ourselves beside our rafts, we waited to see what would happen. Our idea was that if, when the sun rose, we saw nothing of the giant, and no longer heard his howls, which still came faintly through the darkness, growing more and more distant. We should conclude that he was dead, and that we might safely stay upon the island and need not risk our lives upon the frail rafts. But alas, morning light showed us our enemy approaching, supported on either hand by two giants nearly as large and fearful as himself, while a crowd of others followed close upon their heels. Hesitating no longer, we clambered upon our rafts and rowed with all our might out to sea. The giants, seeing their prey escaping them, seized up huge pieces of rock, and wading into the water hurled them after us with such good aim that all rafts, except the one I was upon, were swamped, and their luckless crews drowned, without our being able to do anything to help them. 
Indeed, I and my two companions had all we could do to keep our own raft beyond the reach of the giants, but by dint of hard rowing we at last gained the open sea. Here we were at the mercy of the wind and waves, which tossed us to and fro all that day and night, but the next morning we found ourselves near an island, upon which we gladly landed. There we found delicious fruits, and having satisfied our hunger, we presently lay down to rest upon the shore. Suddenly we were aroused by a loud rustling noise, and, starting up, saw that it was caused by an immense snake, which was gliding towards us over the sand. So swiftly came that it seized one of my comrades before he had time to fly, and in spite of his cries and struggles, speedily crushed the life out of him in its mighty coils, and proceeded to swallow him. By this time, my other companion and I were running for our lives to some place where we might hope to be safe from this new horror, and seeing a tall tree, we climbed up into it, having first provided ourselves with a store of fruit from the surrounding bushes. And seeing a tall tree, we climbed up into it, having first provided ourselves with a store of fruit off the surrounding bushes. When night came, I fell asleep, but only to be awakened once more by the terrible snake, which, after hissing horribly round the tree, at last reared itself up against it and finding my sleeping comrade who was perched just below me, it swallowed him also, and crawled away, leaving me half dead with terror. When the sun rose, I crept down from the tree with hardly hope of escaping the dreadful fate which had overtaken my comrades. But life is sweet, and I determined to do all I could to save myself. All day long I toiled with frantic haste and collected quantities of dry brushwood, reeds, and thorns, which I bound with bundles of sticks, and making a circle of them under my tree, I piled them firmly, one upon another, until I had a kind of tent in which I crouched like a mouse in a hole when she sees the cat coming. You may imagine what a fearful night I passed, for the snake returned eager to devour me, and glided round and round my frail shelter seeking an entrance. Every moment I feared that it would succeed in pushing aside some of the bundles of sticks, but happily for me they held together, and when it grew light my enemy retired, baffled and hungry, to his den. As for me, I was more dead than alive. Shaking with fright and half suffocated by the poisonous breath of the monster, I came out of my tent and crawled down to the sea, feeling that it would be better to plunge from the cliffs and end my life at once than pass such another night of horror. But to my joy and relief, I saw a ship sailing by, and shouting wildly and waving my turban, I managed to attract the attention of her crew. A boat was sent to rescue me, and I very soon found myself on board, surrounded by a wandering crowd of sailors and merchants, eager to know by what chance I found myself in that desolate island. After I had told my story, they regaled me with the choicest food the ship afforded, and the captain, seeing that I was in rags, generously bestowed upon me one of his own coats. After sailing about for some time and touching at many ports, we came at last to the island of Salat, where sandalwood grows in great abundance. Here we anchored, and as I stood watching the merchants disembarking their goods and preparing to sell or exchange them, the captain came up to me and said, I have here, brothers, some merchandise belonging to a passenger of mine who is dead. Will you do me the favor and trade with it? And when I meet with his heirs, I shall be able to give them the money, though it will be only just that you shall have a portion for your trouble. I consented gladly, for I did not like standing by idle. Whereupon he pointed the bales out to me, and sent for the person whose duty it was to keep a list of the goods that were upon the ship. When this man came, he asked in what name the merchandise was to be registered. In the name of Sinbad the Sailor, replied the captain. At this I was greatly surprised, but looking carefully at him, I recognized him to be the captain of the ship upon which I had made my second voyage, though he had altered much since that time. 
As for him, believing me to be dead, it was no wonder he had not recognized me. So, Captain, said I, the merchant who owned these bales was called Sinbad? Yes, he replied. He was so named. He belonged to Baghdad and joined my ship at Balsora, but by mischance he was left behind upon a desert island, where we had landed to fill up our water casks, and it was not until four hours later that he was missed. By that time the wind had freshened and it was impossible to put back for him. You suppose him to have perished, then, said I. Alas, yes, he answered. Why, Captain, I cried, look well at me. I am that Sinbad who fell asleep upon the island and awoke to find himself abandoned. The captain stared at me in amazement, but was presently convinced I was indeed speaking the truth, and rejoiced greatly at my escape. I am glad to have that piece of carelessness off my consciousness at any rate, he said. Now, take your goods, and the profit I have made for you upon them. May you prosper in future. I took them gratefully, and as we went from one island to another, I laid in stores of cloves, cinnamon, and other spices. In one place I saw a tortoise which was twenty cubits long, and as many broad, also a fish that was like a cow and had skin so thick it was used to make shields. Another I saw that was like a camel in shape and color. So by degrees we came back to Balsora, and I returned to Baghdad with so much money I could not myself count it, besides treasures without end. I gave largely to the poor, and bought much land to add to what I already possessed, and thus ended my third voyage. When Sinbad had finished his story, he gave another hundred sequins to Hinbad, who then departed with the other guests, but the next day they had all reassembled, and the banquet was ended. Their host continued his adventures. The Fourth Voyage Rich and happy as I was after my third voyage, I could not make up my mind to stay at home altogether. My love of trading and the pleasure I took in anything that was new and strange made me set my affairs in order and begin my journey through some of the Persian provinces, having first sent off stores of goods to await my coming in different places I intended to visit. I took ship at distant port, and for some time all went well, but at last, being caught in a violent hurricane, our vessel became a total wreck in spite of our worthy captain. Our vessel became a total wreck in spite of all our worthy captain could do to save her, and many of our company perished in the waves. I, with a few others, had the good fortune to be washed ashore clinging to pieces of the wreck, but the storm had driven us near an island, and scrambling up beyond the reach of the waves we threw ourselves down quite exhausted to wait for morning. At daylight we wandered inland, and soon saw some huts, to which we directed our steps. As we drew near, their black inhabitants swarmed out with great numbers and surrounded us, and we were led to their houses, as it were divided among our captors. I, with five others, were taken into a hut, where we were made to sit upon the ground, and certain herbs were given to us, which the blacks made signs to us to eat. Observing that they themselves did not touch them, I was careful to only pretend to taste my portion. But my companions, being very hungry, rashly ate all that was set before them, and very soon I had the horror of seeing them become perfectly mad. Though they chattered incessantly, I could not understand a word they said, nor did they heed what I spoke to them. The savages now produced large bowls of rice prepared with coconut oil, of which my crazy comrades ate eagerly, but I tasted only a few grains, understanding clearly that the object of our captors was to fatten us speedily for their own eating, and this was exactly what happened. My unlucky companions, having lost their reason, felt neither anxiety nor fear, and ate greedily all that was offered them. So they were soon fat, and there was an end of them. But I grew leaner day by day, for I ate but little, and even that little did me no good by reason of my fear of what lay before me. 
However, as I was so far from being a tempting morsel, I was allowed to wander about freely, and one day, all the blacks had gone off on some expedition, leaving only an old man to guard me. I managed to escape from him and plunged into the forest, running faster the more he cried to me to come back, until I completely distanced him. For seven days I hurried on, resting only when the darkness stopped me, and living chiefly upon coconuts, which afforded me both meat and drink, and on the eighth day I reached the seashore and saw a party of white men gathering pepper, which grew abundantly all about. Reassured by the nature of their occupation, I advanced toward them, and they greeted me in Arabic, asking who I was and whence I came. My delight was great upon hearing this familiar speech, and I willingly satisfied the curiosity, telling them that I had been shipwrecked and captured by the blacks. But these savages devour men, said they. How did you escape? I repeated to them what I've just told you, at which they were mightily astonished. I stayed with them until they had collected as much pepper as they wished, and then they took me back to their own country and presented me to their king, by whom I was hospitably received. To him, also, I had to relate my adventures, which surprised him much, and when I had finished, he ordered that I should be supplied with food and raiment and treated with consideration. The island on which I found myself was full of people and abounded in all sorts of desirable things, and a great deal of traffic went on in the capital, where soon I began to feel at home and contented. Moreover, the king treated me with special favor, and in consequence of this, everyone, whether at the court or in the town, sought to make life pleasant to me. One thing I remarked, which I thought was very strange, this was that, from the greatest to the least, all men rode their horses without bridles or stirrups. One day I presumed to ask his majesty why he did not use them, to which he replied, You speak to me of things of which I have never before heard. This gave me an idea. I found a clever workman, and made him cut out, under my direction, the foundation of a saddle, which I wadded and covered with choice leather, adorning it with a rich gold embroidery. Then I got a locksmith to make me a bit and a pair of spurs after a pattern that I drew for him, and when these were completed I presented them to the king and showed him not to use them. When I had saddled one of his horses, he mounted it, and rode about quite delighted with the novelty, and to show his gratitude, he rewarded me with large gifts. After this, I had to make saddles for all the principal officers in the king's household, and as they all gave me rich presents, I soon became very wealthy and an important person in the city. One day, the king sent for me and said, Sinbad, I am going to ask a favor of you. Both I and my subjects esteem you, and wish you to end your days amongst us. Therefore, I desire that you will marry a rich and beautiful lady whom I will find for you, and think no more of your own country. As the king's will was law, I accepted this charming bride he presented to me, and lived happily with her. Nevertheless, I had every intention of escaping at the first opportunity, and going back to Baghdad. Things were thus going prosperously with me, when it happened that the wife of one of my neighbors, with whom I had struck up quite a friendship, fell ill and presently died. I went to his house to offer my consolations, and found him in the depths of woe. "'Heaven preserve you,' said I, "'and send you a long life.' "'Alas,' he replied, "'what is good of saying that when I have but an hour left to live?' "'Come, come,' I said, "'surely it will not be as bad as that. I trust that you may be spared to me for many years.' "'I hope,' answered he, "'that your life may be long, but for me all is finished. I have set my house in order, and today I shall be buried with my wife.' This has been the law upon our island from the earliest ages. The living husband goes to the grave with his dead wife, the living wife with her dead husband. So did our fathers, and so must we do. The law changes not, and all must submit to it. As he spoke, the friends and relations of the unhappy pair began to assemble. 
The body, decked in rich robes and sparkling with jewels, was laid upon an open bier, and the procession started, taking its way to a high mountain at some distance from the city, the wretched husband clothed from head to foot in a black mantle, following mournfully. When the place of interment was reached, the corpse was lowered, just as it was, into a deep pit. Then the husband, bidding farewell to all his friends, stretched himself upon another bier, upon which were laid seven little loaves of bread and a pitcher of water, where he was also let down, 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 into the depths of the horrible cavern, and then a stone was laid over the opening, and the melancholy company wended its way back into the city. You may imagine that I was no unmoved spectator of these proceedings. To all the others it was a thing to which they had become accustomed from their youth up, but I was so horrified that I could not help telling the king how it struck me. Sire, I said, I am more astonished than I can express to you at the strange custom which exists in your dominions of burying the living with the dead. In all my travels I have never before met so cruel and horrible a law. What would you have, Sinbad? he replied. It is the law for everybody. I myself should be buried with the queen if she were the first to die. But, your majesty, I asked, dare I ask if this law applies to foreigners also? Why, yes replied the king, smiling, in what I consider a very heartless manner. There is no exception to the rule if they have married in the country. When I heard this, I went home and much cast down, and from that time forward my mind was never easy. If only my wife's little finger ached, I fancied she was going to die, and sure enough, before long she fell really ill, and in a few days breathed her last. My dismay was great, for it seemed to me that to be buried alive was an even worse fate than to be devoured by cannibals— Nevertheless, there was no escape. The body of my wife, arrayed in her richest robes and decked with all her jewels, was laid upon the bier. I followed it, and after me came a great procession, headed by the king and all his nobles, and in this order we reached the fatal mountain, which was one of a lofty chain bordering the sea. Here I made one more frantic effort to entice the pity of the king and those who stood by, hoping to save myself even at this last moment, but it was of no avail. No one spoke to me. They even appeared to hasten over their dreadful task, and I speedily found myself descending into the gloomy pit, and my seven loaves and pitcher of water beside me. Almost before I reached the bottom, the stone was rolled into place above my head, and I was left to my fate. A feeble ray of light shone into the cavern through some chink, and when I had the courage to look about me, I could see that it was in a vast vault, bestrewn with the bones and bodies of the dead. I even fancied that I heard the expiring sighs of those who, like myself, had come into this dismal place alive. All in vain did I shriek aloud with rage and despair, reproaching myself for the love of gain and adventure which had brought me to such a pass. But at length, growing calmer, I took up my bread and water, and wrapping my face in my mantle I groped my way towards the end of the cavern where the air was fresher. Here I lived in darkness and misery until my provisions were exhausted, but just as I was nearly dead from starvation, the rock was rolled away overhead, and I saw a bier that was being lowered into the cavern, and the corpse upon it was that of a man. In a moment, my mind was made up. The woman who followed had nothing to expect but a lingering death. I should be doing her a service if I shortened her misery. Therefore, when she descended, already insensible from terror, I was already armed with a huge bone, one blow from which left her dead, and I secured the bread and water which gave me hope of life. Several times did I have recourse to this desperate expedient, and I know not how long I had been a prisoner when one day I fancied that I heard something near me, which breathed loudly. Turning to the place from which the sound came, I dimly saw a shadowy form which fled at my movement, squeezing itself through a cranny in the wall. 
I pursued it as fast as I could and found myself in a narrow crack among the rocks, along which I was just able to force my way. I followed it for what seemed to me many miles, and at last saw before me a glimmer of light which grew clearer every moment until I emerged upon the seashore with a joy which I cannot describe. When I was sure that I was not dreaming, I realized that it was doubtless some little animal which had found its way into the cavern from the sea, and when disturbed had fled, showing me a means of escape which I could have never discovered for myself. I hastily surveyed my surroundings, and saw that I was safe from all pursuit from the town. The mountains sloped sheer down to the sea, and there was no road across them. Being assured of this, I returned to the cavern, and amassed a rich treasure of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and jewels of all kinds which were strewn upon the ground. These I made up into bales, and stored them into a safe place upon the beach, then waited hopefully for the passing of a ship. I had looked out for two days, however, before a single sail appeared, so it was with much delight that I at last saw a vessel not far from shore, and waving my arms and uttering loud cries, succeeded in attracting the attention of her crew. A boat was sent off to me, and in answer to the questions of the sailors as to how I came to be in such a plight, I replied that I had been shipwrecked two days before, but I managed to scramble ashore with the bales which I pointed out to them. Luckily for me, they believed my story, without even looking at the place where they found me took up my bundles, and rowed me back to the ship. Once on board, I saw the captain was too much occupied with the difficulties of navigation to pay much heed to me, though he generously made me welcome, and would not even accept the jewels with which I offered to pay my passage. Our voyage was very prosperous, and after visiting many lands and collecting in each place a store of goodly merchandise, I found myself at last in Baghdad once more with unheard of riches in every description. Again, I gave large sums of money to the poor, and enriched all the mosques in the city, after which I gave myself up to my friends and relations, with whom I passed my time in feasting and merriment. Here Sinbad paused, and all his hearers declared that the adventures of his fourth voyage had pleased them better than anything they had heard before. They then took their leave, followed by Hinbad, who had once more received a hundred sequins, and the rest had been bidden to return the next day for the story of the fifth voyage. When the time came, all were in their places, and when they had eaten and drunk of all that was set before them, Sinbad began his tale. But that story will have to wait for another night. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Be safe. Be well. Thank you to Scott, who edits these so well. To Ian and Nick, who join me in the very funny retellings. And thank you to all of you for continuing to listen and support the podcast. Thank you especially to all of our listeners in the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, Brazil, South Korea, Japan, Mongolia, Taiwan, Australia, France, Thailand, Israel, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Chechia, Ukraine, Russia, Hong Kong, India, Azerbaijan, Italy, New Zealand, Colombia, Morocco, Peru, Mexico, Slovakia, Latvia, Belgium, Oman, Australia, the Netherlands, Turkey, and Sweden. Our theme, Passing Beauty by Dan Philipson, is licensed through premiumbeats.com. You can support the podcast through a one-time donation by going to ko-fi.com slash chaos underscore lily, that's C-H-A-O-S underscore L-I-L-L-Y, or through Venmo at Chaos Lily Creations. Again, that's C-H-A-O-S-L-I-L-L-Y-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S. You can also support the podcast for $5 a month and become one of our muses at Fairy Tale Podcast on Patreon. 
You can also reach out and contact me and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chaos of the Creations or email me at chaosofthecreations at gmail.com. Thank you so much, everybody. This is Ariel, swimming off. that Scott, which I bound with facts. Wow. I realize it's the proper word, but let's go back and redo this. Which I bound with bundles of sticks. The island owned pretend to taste my portion. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott. <laughs>